0: On Sunday mornings, currently, we're in a series in the pastoral epistles on distinctives of a gospel-shaped church. But today, I want to turn our attention uh, to the importance of thanksgiving. And I want to focus on Psalm 9 in the Old Testament in a message entitled, Give Thanks to the Lord. Give thanks to the Lord. So if you'll turn to Psalm 9, I'll be there here in just a moment, and I'm going to read uh, the entirety of the psalm uh, before I conclude today. You know, I think a sense of entitlement is a very dangerous thing for us in life and especially in our faith. Entitlement has been defined as the belief that one is inherently deserving of privileges or of special treatment. So the idea basically is that we deserve something because of our actions, our qualities, or our situation. The antidote to entitlement is thanksgiving. In everything, give thanks, for this is the will of God for you in Christ Jesus our Lord. God's command to be thankful is not limited just to the good things that come our way. That's easy because those are the happy and the pleasant things. It also includes the challenging things that we experience. And it takes a significant amount of humility for us to recognize that each of us has within us the capacity to sense that we are entitled in some way or that God owes us something and we begin to think that we deserve it rather than recognizing it is all of grace. I think saying thank you is the most basic form of showing gratitude and we ought to be a thankful people it it ought to be our spirit a spirit of gratitude toward God and toward others because it shows our appreciation and it shows where we place our value and an attitude of thanksgiving has also been shown to bring higher levels of happiness to us so there's a good benefit to it Uh, and not only happiness but also contributes to health in people's lives as well. Now, Psalm 9 is specifically focused on the justice of God. But in it, there's a song of thanksgiving. It's ascribed to David, and we don't know exactly what the title of the inscription means, but we do know that David wrote the psalm to God himself. If, in fact, this is David writing, he's writing to God in a very personal way, And most people believe that the title itself suggests an instrument that they might have played as they uh, sang this psalm back to God, or even the manner in which they sang it and communicated it back to God. In the psalm, there's praise to the Lord for manifesting his righteousness. It's in the context of judging wicked nations and also focusing on God as the true and eternal judge that we can trust in personally, and that we can know personally. And the psalmist is praying that God would give him cause for praise, specifically by removing his affliction and taking it from him so that he could give God praise for what he had done. Now, there are five synonymous verbs that are used in this psalm that I think are important. Give thanks, recount, be glad, exalt and sing praise. And the entirety of the psalmist's life is wrapped up and grounded in the reality of God's character and God's mighty actions in his creation. Now, the Psalms are absolutely full of praise. And in being full of praise, uh, it's because it's the source of our joy that is focused on God himself as the source of our joy. And because God is the source of our joy, praise causes our hearts to be open to God and to understand God for who he is and to give him the credit that he alone deserves. J.I. Packer wrote, we need to discover all over again that worship is natural to the Christian as it was to the godly Israelites who wrote the Psalms. And that the habit of celebrating the greatness and graciousness of God yields an endless flow of thankfulness, joy, and zeal. I begin now reading in Psalm 9 in verse 1. I will thank the Lord with all my heart. I will declare all your wondrous works. I will rejoice and boast about you. I will sing about your name, Most High. When my enemies retreat, they stumble and perish before you. For you have upheld my just cause You are seated on the throne as a righteous judge. You have rebuked the nations. You have destroyed the wicked. You have erased their name forever and ever. The enemy has come to to eternal ruin. You have uprooted the cities, and the very memory of them has perished. Verse 7 But the Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for judgment, and he judges the world with righteousness. He executes judgment on the nations with fairness. The Lord is a refuge for the persecuted, a refuge in times of trouble. Those who know your name trust in you because you've not abandoned those who seek you, Lord. Sing to the Lord who dwells in Zion. Proclaim his deeds among the nations. For the one who seeks an accounting for bloodshed remembers them. He does not forget the cry of the oppressed. Verse 13. Be gracious to me, Lord. Consider my affliction at the hands of those who hate me. Lift me up from the gates of death so that I may declare all your praises. I'll rejoice in your salvation within the gates of daughter Zion. The nations have fallen into the pit they made. Their foot is caught in the net they have concealed. The Lord has made himself known. He has executed justice, uh, snaring the wicked by the works of their hands. Verse 17 the wicked will return to Sheol, all the nations that forget God. For the needy will not always be forgotten. The hope of the oppressed will not perish forever. Rise up, Lord. Do not let mere humans prevail. Let the nations be judged in your presence. Put terror in them, Lord. Let the nations know they are only humans. Father, I pray in these moments as we reflect on who you are your holy character, your righteousness, your role as the judge of all the earth, that we would be in awe of you, that you would draw us into a time of praise and thanksgiving and worship as we're reminded, God, of who you are as the eternal God, the God of the ages, the God who has no beginning and no end. And I pray, Father, that we would be stirred in our hearts to worship you with all that we have, and that you would see us through both the good times and the challenging ones. And in it all, we would give you the glory, Lord, because all good things come from your hand. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. As we spend a few moments together in Psalm 9, I want to show you several ways that you should give thanks to the Lord that rise up from this Psalm. First of all, you should give thanks to the Lord And give thanks for who God is. We start with, in our thanksgiving always, who God is, uh, with who God is, before we start with what God has done. We understand his character and his nature that shows us that he's worthy of the praise that we give him. And as God's people, we're to be a thankful people. God is good and God does good. And it's been said that God is the highest good that we could ever seek. That he is the standard by which we even measure goodness. So when we say give thanks for who God is, there's some specific reasons for that. And as the scripture notes here, we recognize that God is the eternal God. Notice what it says in verse 7. The Lord sits enthroned forever. He has established his throne for judgment. Now I'm going to give you a contrast here. Every one of us had a beginning. There was a time when we were not. And God in his infinite wisdom saw fit to bring us into this world. And that's when our time as we know it began. In contrast with that, God has no beginning and God has no end. He is the eternal God. He is the one that we depend on for all things. He's the one that sees the beginning from the end. The philosopher and theologian John Frame wrote a piece on the eternality and the aseity of God. And he said this in part. He said aseity means God is sufficient to himself independent of everything outside of himself. God's eternality is his assayity with respect to time. Lord, he is the Lord of time who exists above and apart from it, and yet he is free to enter it to accomplish his purposes. So when we look to God and we begin to give him thanks, we give him thanks because we recognize that He is the one who is eternal over all things, and in that, he has no needs. In other words, God is not insufficient in any way. God is not deficient in any way. God is self-existent. He's eternal. And yet, he has determined in his wisdom to enter into this creation that he made and bring blessings and judgments to it. This is the God who existed before the created world. Time is no limit for God. He created time. And if you think about uh, the rule of God being eternal without end, it it's almost stretches our minds beyond what we can comprehend, right? We think about something being eternal and, and all we can think about is the boundaries of time. We think about the limits that we have of when we're born and when we die and these chapters and these seasons and these months and these years and these hours that we experience and we recognize our limits. When we look to God and we say he's the one who has no limits then that takes us beyond just ordinary human comprehension. Now a lot of people as of late have been enamored with uh, the British rule and uh, I would remind you there's a reason we left that Um, But at any rate, people are still enamored with it. Maybe it's because of that show, The Crown, uh, brought it into some popularity. Maybe it's because of uh, Queen Elizabeth. She had an incredibly long reign. I mean, can you imagine being in charge of something for 70 years? Something like 70 years and 214 days uh, to the minute. That's a long reign, and certainly she did some good things in that time, and you look at other long-standing rulers around the world, and it's amazing that they would have that type of influence for long periods of time. But friends, in comparison to eternity, 70 years is just a moment. It's here, and it's gone. It has no length at all. And kings and queens and other people in positions of authority, their rule lasts for a time and then it ends. But God, on the other hand, he reigns forever. Psalm 102 and verse 12 says, but you, O Lord, are enthroned forever. You are remembered throughout all generations. Now, let me give you a very practical application of this for our lives. This ought to be an encouragement to us because our lives are not ruled by random circumstances. Our lives are not guided by luck. Our lives are ruled and guided by God who is the eternal king. And he is the one who can see the beginning of your life and the end of your life and all points in between. He knows how he has uniquely created you to live out your purpose in this world. He knows what he wants you to accomplish, and he is overlooking and guiding all of that in a very real way in your life. And he can be trusted. You can give thanks to God for who he is. But then he takes a turn here and speaks of God's role as the judge of the world in verse 8. He says he judges the world with righteousness and he executes judgment on the nations with fairness. Now, in part, I think David's looking forward to the ultimate rule of God over all the nations. This would be the expression of God's righteous judgment executed through his son. A thousand years after David's time, the apostle Paul quoted this verse on Mars Hill, where he said that God will judge the world in righteousness in Acts chapter 17 and verse 31. And this is a strong reminder to us that God will judge both individuals and nations through his son as the righteous judge. Deuteronomy 10 and verse 17 says, for the Lord your God is a God of gods and Lord of lords. He's the great God, mighty and awesome, who shows no partiality and accepts no bribes. The judge of all the earth, will do right, and he will do right because he rightly judges according to his righteousness and his justice. So let me give you another point of application here that I think will encourage you. No matter how chaotic the world is around us, and it is very chaotic around us in the age that we live in, no matter how evil the world is in its fallen condition, And it is very evil in its fallen condition in the age that we live in. You can mark it down. God will judge all things according to his righteousness. He will set all things right according to his righteousness. So watch this. God will not judge according to cultural redefinitions. God will not judge according to personal preference. God will not judge according to majority opinion. God will not judge according to presidential decree. God will judge according to righteousness. And he will set all things right for his glory and for the good of his people. And we should take comfort in that. Because we recognize that God is not finished with what he's going to do. And we don't have to worry and we don't have to be anxious about all of those things. Do you think God is anxious on his throne in heaven? Do you think God is wringing his hands about what's going on among the nations in heaven? No, he sits in throne forever and he's the one who sees the beginning from the end. And he knows that he will judge according to righteousness and he will apply that through his son. And so we trust in him and we give thanks to God for who he is. And further, the scripture says here in verse 9 that our God is a refuge for us. He says the Lord is a refuge for the persecuted, a refuge in times of trouble. Now, what does the word refuge make you think of? It's basically a safe place. It's sheltered from the enemy. It's protected or shielded from danger. It is uh, taken care of in the midst of trouble. And many times, God led the Israelites into battles against armies that were stronger than they were. Now, why would God put them in a situation where they're going in and maybe they're fewer in number? Or maybe the enemy is stronger? Or maybe the situation is, it seems like dire circumstances? Why would God do that? Because if they had been able simply to overwhelm them or if they had won the victory by their own strength or their own military might or their own power, what were they prone to do? They were prone to take the credit. And so God would put them in circumstances where maybe the odds were even overwhelming and God would give them the victory and he would show his faithfulness. He would be their refuge and he's our refuge as well. And David certainly knew this from a personal perspective. He found himself on the run from enemies many times, enemies who wanted to kill him, and he would take his refuge in God. Psalm forty six and verse one says, God is our refuge and strength. He's a helper who is always found in times of trouble. Is God your refuge? Is God the place that you go to when you're afraid or when you're in trouble? Is God the place that you go to when you need wisdom and answers for circumstances in your life? He tells us that he is if we will trust in him. And verse 10 says, those who know your name trust in you because you've not abandoned those who seek you, Lord. So God's help comes to people who have a relationship with him. People who trust in him. People who seek him. And I say to you today, if you have a relationship with him, then certainly you ought to trust him. If you trust him, then certainly you ought to seek him. And if you don't have a relationship with him, maybe you're trying to find answers for your life in other places. And I assure you, you will always come up empty and disappointed if you're looking for answers to your ultimate problems anywhere else besides in God. Because he is the God of the ages. And he can be trusted. Now the second way you should give thanks is you should give thanks with your whole heart. Now he makes reference here to the heart. And specifically in verse 1 he says, I will thank the Lord with all my heart. And there is an abundance of information available on the physical aspects of the heart. But here we see an emphasis on the spiritual aspect of the heart. So what is the heart? Well, essentially in the Bible, as, as it's described, it's the place where everything happens. And, and it's the place where everything happens because it's the seat of our mind and our emotions and our will and our conscience. Did you know there's a reference one way or the other in the Bible uh, over a thousand times to the heart? God cares about your heart. He cares about Your relationship with him in the heart is the spiritual focal point of all we do as God's creations. And we're to give thanks with our whole heart. And as we do that, we declare the wondrous works of God. Now, David realized that God was worthy of praise and he knew that this couldn't be part time praise. This couldn't be half hearted praise. This couldn't be partly in kind of praise. It had to be a wholehearted expression of praise to God. And according to one uh, Bible dictionary definition of the heart, the word heart stands for the entirety of our activity, both our rational and our emotional and our spiritual elements. And Jesus had a lot to say about the heart. I think about one time in particular when Jesus uh, had a dialogue with the Jewish leaders. The dialogue ensued because Jesus had taught a parable about the vineyard owner. And I'm referencing specifically Mark chapter 12 now. And in the first 12 verses of Mark, uh, he's telling this parable about the vineyard owner and the significance of it. And so they turn the question and they ask him a question relative to uh, loyalty toward Caesar versus loyalty toward God. They also focused on life after death. And then Jesus answered and Jesus exposed their hearts. Now let me just pause before I make this point. Nothing in your heart is hidden from God. We sometimes convince ourselves that we can compartmentalize our lives, compartmentalize our our spiritual approach, and sort of shield things from God. How laughable is that? That the God who gave you life and called you into being, that somehow you think that he doesn't know what's going on in your heart. Oh, he knows. So Jesus exposed their hearts, and a scribe, a scribe asked a more serious question. He wanted to know what was the first and most important commandment. And Jesus answered and quoted from two Old Testament passages in Mark 12 and verse 30, and he said, and you shall love the Lord your God with your whole heart, your whole soul, your whole mind, your whole strength, essentially the entirety of your being. How do we do that? By giving God first place in our lives. That's how. By loving him with a sincere love, by surrendering the best of ourselves to him. And you know as well as I do in this life that we get pulled away and distracted. I say often that we live in not only do we live in the age of distraction, but we probably live in the most significant age of distraction that has ever existed in human history. We we are a distracted people. And you know as well as I do, because I feel this. That tension where we we see these things that are pulling us away. They're they're drawing our affections away from God. They're drawing our attention away from God. And we know that we ought to be focused in over here on God and our relationship with him and yet we feel that pull and it says to us that we have to be intentional about a relationship with God and be thankful to him by giving him first place in our lives you know one of the ways that this is evidenced what you talk about and what you magnify in your life let me show you where I get that from He says in verse 1, I will declare your wondrous works. In verse 2, I will rejoice and I will boast about you. Who is the psalmist boasting about? He's boasting about God. Simply remembering and telling the great things that God has done is a wonderful way to thank him, to recognize him. Wondrous works is a single Hebrew word that is particularly frequent in the Psalms. And it's used specifically of redemptive miracles, but also to refer to their daily experiences. So the psalmist is saying, listen, I'm going to tell of your wondrous works. I'm going to tell of your redemptive miracles. I'm going to tell of your creative power. I'm going to tell of your intervention in history. And I'm also going to tell what you've done in my life. And I'm going to exalt you. And boasting in the Lord is boasting of the Lord. First Corinthians 1 and verse 31, Paul wrote, As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. So what are we to boast in? What God's done for us. What God is doing for us. What God will do for us. He's on our hearts and he's on our lips. And We also are to sing about God's name, Most High. Notice he says here in verse 11, sing to the Lord who dwells in Zion, proclaim his deeds among the nations. Now, Pastor Eric, you'll appreciate this part of the sermon, but did you know that God's people are a singing people? God's people have always been a singing people. The Bible is full of singing praises to God. From the beginning to the end, all the way into the future when we see people gathered around the throne of God, people who have been redeemed from every tribe and tongue and nation, what are they doing? They are singing praises to God because he's worthy. God loves singing and he has commanded us in the scripture to sing. He has designed singing for our joy. And I want to encourage you that one of the most important things that we do when we gather together as the body of Christ in the church in this gathered time of worship is we come with hearts prepared and we sing to the Lord. And that means that when we're looking out and we're singing songs of praise together that you're not standing there with your mouth closed, disinterested, uninvolved, Not engaged. Friend, this is not about the quality of your singing. This is about the heart of your praise. And I want to encourage you to be a singing people. Not just songs that are super familiar to you, that you remember, that give you a warm, fuzzy feeling And when you were standing with your grandma 40 years ago. I want you to be a person who praises God now. What is God doing in your life in this moment? Is Jesus Christ not worthy of your singing? We're to be a singing people. Sing about God's name. Exalt him. And there's going to be a lot of singing in heaven, so you just well get ready. Now be a good time to prepare yourself for it. Psalm 63 and verse 7 says, For you've been my help, and in the shadow of your wings I will sing for joy. We also rejoice in salvation, according to verse 14. I will rejoice in your salvation within the gates of daughter Zion. Now, I think the psalmist had in mind here both temporal deliverance from his enemies as well as eternal salvation by faith through the grace of God. When we speak of the salvation of God, we're talking ultimately, of course, what God is going to do when he takes us to be in his presence. But we're also talking about God in the moment. God protecting us when we didn't even know we needed protected. God watching over us when there was some type of threat against us spiritually or otherwise when the enemy's flinging those fiery darts against us and God is there watching over us and taking care of us. I like what what William Nicholson said in the 19th century. He said, salvation grants pardon to the guilty, justification to the condemned, liberty to the spiritual captive, health to the spiritually sick, sight to the spiritually blind, and in short, all spiritual blessings in heavenly places in Christ." Jesus. Rejoice in salvation when you realize you need it. When you understand with gratitude what Jesus has done for you. When you receive it by faith. And when you make him known to others. The third way you can give thanks is you should give thanks even when life is difficult. You ever notice... People talk a lot about the blessings when it's a happy time. We're kind of in that age with social media, especially that blessed is kind of a catch all word or phrase of some description. But not as many people say, you know what, I was blessed when I went through that hardship. I was blessed in that dark hour. I was blessed in that time of need when I didn't know where I was going to find my provision. I think David's praising God probably for military victories and for righteous judgment and justice. But he's also previewing the total ruin of all people who will come against God and oppose him. And it is very clear in the scripture that the wicked and all the nations who refuse to acknowledge God will perish. But the needy will never perish. And we are the spiritually needy. And you can give thanks even when life is difficult because God never abandons those who seek him. Verse 10. Those who know your name trust in you because you've not abandoned those who seek you, Lord. When God delivers us, the result of it is that we grow in confidence in God. And God wants you to grow in confidence in Him. And were it not for those difficulties, were it not for those adverse situations, were it not for those challenges, were it not for those obstacles, were it not for those mountains that you had to overcome or those valleys that you had to walk through, you would not have known the faithfulness of God at the level that you do. So thank Him for those things. Because he's with you all the way. He's promised he'll never leave you nor forsake you. This is a very serious thing when a child of God feels forsaken by God or abandoned by him. And Sometimes we feel it when we've sinned or when we face serious trouble or when we have a significant challenge in front of us or when we feel like our prayers have not been answered. And yet God says time and again in the scripture, I will never leave you nor forsake you. Deuteronomy 31 and verse 6 says, be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid or terrified because of them for the Lord, your God goes with you and he will never leave you nor forsake you. I want you to know today that you can trust God no matter what the situation is. And I know some of you came in here today with, with a burden, might be a physical burden because you got some medical testing. It wasn't good or something you've been dealing with on an ongoing basis might be a family crisis broken relationships troubled families might be financial burden because of a situation you find yourself in vocationally or a life situation that's come your way God is with you in the adversity and he will see you through it and adversity can actually be helpful for us Let me share this with you by way of illustration. It's a story about a daughter that complained to her father about how hard things were for her. She says to her father, As as soon as I solve one problem, another one comes up, and I'm just tired of struggling. Her father, who was vocationally a chef, took her to the kitchen where he filled three pots of water and he placed each one on high. Soon the pots came to a boil, and in one he placed carrots. In the second, he placed eggs. And in the last one, he placed ground coffee beans. He let them sit and boil without saying a word. The daughter impatiently waits, wondering what he's doing. And after a while, he turns the burners off. He fishes out the carrots and he places them in one bowl. He pulls out the eggs and places them in another bowl. And then he pours the coffee into a third bowl. He looks at his daughter and he says, what do you see? She said, I see carrots and eggs and coffee. He brought her closer and he asked her to fill the carrots. She did and they were soft. He asked her to take an egg and break it. And after pulling off the shell, she observed that it was a hard boiled egg. Finally, he asked her to sip the coffee and she smiled as she tasted its rich flavor. And then he asked, what does this mean? And he explained that each one of them had faced the same adversity. Each one of them had encountered boiling water, but each one of them had reacted differently. The carrot went in strong and unrelenting, but after being subjected to the boiling water, it was softened and became weak. The egg was fragile. Its thin outer shell had protected the liquid interior, but after it was placed in the boiling water, its inside hardened. The ground coffee beans were unique. By being in the boiling water, they changed the water. And then he asked his daughter, when adversity knocks on your door, which are you? Now you see the application of this. What are we gonna do when we face adversity? Are we just gonna break under the weakness of it, the stress of it all? Are we going to find our strength in God? God's promised he'll always be with you. Friend, if you didn't hear anything else here that I have said this morning, I want you to hear this. Whatever you're going through right now, God is with you. He's with you. He knows where you're at. He knows what your situation is. He knows what your need is. He knows what the outcome of it all is going to be. He is with you. He will not leave you if you will trust in him. His presence is certain. And further, God does not forget those who are needy or oppressed. Notice what he says in verse 18. For the needy will not always be forgotten. The hope of the oppressed will not perish forever. Who are the needy? They are those with few resources on their own. And God preferentially treats the needy with his goodness so that we will trust in him and note that the psalmist pleads that they might know his name that they might know the character of God by way of personal experience and through the deliverance of God one commentator put it this way he said you're not going to be forgotten at the mercy seat so you keep praying you'll not be forgotten in the word so you keep reading." You'll not be forgotten at the Lord's table. So you keep receiving. You will not be forgotten in your service to God. So you keep serving. Finally, David prays in verse 19 and 20 that God would prevail and that the nations would be judged. Did you know that the true measure of all people is whether they remember or forget God, as it were? God never forgets us. And though David speaks of his own times and his own experiences, I think this foreshadows the total victory of Jesus Christ when he returns. And this is the hope that we have now and for the future. And I close with this quote from Harry Ironside. He said, we would worry less if we praised more. Thanksgiving is the enemy of discontent and dissatisfaction. Maybe you're feeling discontent and dissatisfied in your soul today. What you need is a big old measure of gratitude in your heart, and it'll overcome what you're feeling and what you're experiencing. Let's bow our heads together as we come toward the close of the service. I don't know what your needs are, but God does. He knew before you came through the door this morning. My prayer is that you've come not just to go through the motions, but to encounter the living God. That's why we come together to worship as we do, to encounter the living God and to give him the praise and the worship that's due him. So I encourage you today to lean in closer to the Lord. Draw near to him and he'll draw near to you. Would you bring your burdens and your needs and your prayers and your concerns and bring them to God Believing that he cares, he's near, and he'll answer. And would you give him thanks for what he's done for you already and what you know he's going to do in the future? He's deserving of our best, of our whole heart, no matter what the situation is. Today, if your faith is not in Jesus, if you've never turned from your sins and embraced Jesus by faith, believing in his death, burial, and resurrection, Today would be a good day for your salvation. You can trust in him right now. Maybe God brought you here today for this reason. To save your soul. Will you trust him? If you will, he'll hear your prayer. And he'll change your life forever. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to be here together. To worship you. To be gathered together in corporate worship to lift up our voices in song. God, you love singing. In the scripture, it even says that you sing over us. We can only imagine what that singing voice must be like as you rejoice in who we are as your children. Father, I pray that our lives would be a song of praise in all that we do and that you would make us not an entitled people but a grateful people. And you'd get the glory, God, for our lives as we submit them to you. We give this time of closing response over to you. If there are decisions that need to be made or steps of faith that need to be taken, I pray that people would respond to you. We ask it all in Jesus' name. Amen.